Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Oh God, you make us glad with the weekly remembrance of the glorious resurrection of your Son, our Lord. Give us this day, this morning, and this next hour, such blessing through our worship of you that the week to come may be spent in your favor. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you participated with us uh, in our Easter service, one of the things we talked about is how a hallmark of the resurrection accounts is there are these mysterious cliffhanger moments in the Bible. Uh, in the gospel accounts at the beginning, the women and the disciples, you even heard it in the Road to Emmaus there that Max just read, they see the empty tomb, they hear that Jesus is alive, but they don't see him. Jesus himself is not in the beginning resurrection accounts. And so there's this beautiful, mysterious, cliffhanging period of time in between when they see the empty tomb and they hear the testimony of the angel and when they encounter the one who has risen. And that's purposeful in the Bible, that period. Again, they, they have the testimony. They've heard he's alive, but apparently Jesus is just out there somewhere to the disciples and the women. They know he's gone ahead of them. They're going to meet him. They don't know when they're going to bump into him or how. Can you imagine the suspense of that moment <laughs> to be one of them, to be Peter and John running back to the other disciples, to be the women running back to tell the disciples originally. They're telling him he's alive, but they still haven't met him. You can also imagine the doubt and faith that would be involved in that moment. You can see why it would be easy for somebody to be like, I don't know, I don't buy this, which is how the, the apostles reacted at the beginning. Okay, there's a testimony, there's, there's an empty tomb, but there's a lot that could, you know, explain that. It might sound crazy, but a fundamental Christian conviction is that you and I live in that same situation. Jesus is alive today. Amen? He's risen. He's on the move. In his resurrected glory, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is roaming. He's out there. He's not bound in an ancient tomb. He's not encased in history or in scripture. He's unbound, and you can meet him. You can actually interact with him. He wants to meet you. This is all Christianity. This is our Christian worship, is encountering the risen one. This is our evangelism, is leading others to encounter the one who has risen. Everything we do is about encountering the risen Christ. But how? Where? When does that happen? That was certainly the question on the disciples' mind on Easter morning. You're coming back. Think of the women coming back from the tomb. Okay, where has Jesus gone ahead of us? How are we going to meet him? And that should be our question too. How do we encounter the risen Christ? How do we lead other people to not just like become a part of a club or some weird religion, but to encounter the living God? Lucky for us, the Bible answers the cliffhanger of Easter morning with Easter afternoon, which is what this story is in Luke 24. It's on Easter afternoon. It's all about Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus. 
this passage is so important for our Christian life. In Luke's gospel, it's the very next story after the resurrection account, and it is the first time in Luke that the resurrected one is encountered. And I want to propose to you that this story should not just be read as a unique story, but should rather be approached as a paradigm for how we witness the risen Christ. It's a playbook, if you will, for how we encounter him in our worship and our discipleship. It's a playbook for how Jesus helps us to know how to lead others to encounter him. We want to be like Cleopas and this other guy who get to eat and see and hear from God and it sets them on fire and they know that they were in his presence. Right? That's what we want to do. That's what I want to do. Is that what you guys want to do? Hallelujah. So our simple goal this morning um, is to study this passage in order to discover how we can encounter the risen one and in how we can lead others to encounter the risen Jesus. And uh, to help us wrap our minds around it, I've broken it down into three distinct parts. And if you are an outline filler, I've given you the outline with blanks. You're very welcome. I was that far ahead this week uh, in your bulletin. So would you grab your Bible, if you have it, and turn to Luke 24? If you're at home, would you uh, grab your Bible and turn to Luke 24? And if not, you can just turn to the, the part of the bulletin that has it. All right, here's your first blank. Witnessing the risen one begins with drawing near. Drawing near is your blank. Witnessing the risen one begins with drawing near, verses 13 to 15. That day, two of them, that very day, Easter, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. What ends in a full-blown encounter with the living God begins with drawing near. These two guys are walking along the road, and Jesus just starts walking next to them. He becomes a companion with them on the way. This is how it all, all begins. Jesus does a lot of stuff. He reveals himself in a lot of different ways, but I find it interesting that in this story, it doesn't begin with open-air preaching. It doesn't begin with a miracle. It begins with Jesus being relational, intentional, attentive. It's that simple. Notice Jesus, do, Jesus knows everything that these guys are confused about. Everything, right? But notice he doesn't preach first. What does he do first? He asks them questions. He listens. He empathizes with their extreme confusion and sadness because that's what the Bible says they are. It's a Jesus master class in the life-changing act of saying, tell me more about that. Has anybody ever said that to you? Jason said to Randy this morning, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing all right. And what'd you say? Really? I was like, what a Jesus moment, Jason. That intentionality. But seriously, not often do people ask us, tell me more about that. How are you really? As Americans, we say, how are you all the time, but we don't mean it, right? Look at verse 17. And he said to them, this is after he's drawn near to them, what's this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? What are you guys talking about? And they stood still, looking sad. 
And then one of them said, are you the only guy here who has no idea what's happened in the past few days? Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? Don't you love that? He just asked the other question, and then Cleopas gushes. All this stuff happened. Now the dramatic irony again, Jesus knows everything. He's asking them what they think about Jesus, and he's Jesus, okay? This isn't him asking for information. It's him being intentional. Jesus takes whole, his whole Easter afternoon, this is a big day for Jesus, to just empathize with these guys. He could have been doing so many other things, but he said, I'm going to just companion these two people, and I'm going to listen, I'm going to hear them out. Long before we witness the risen one, God draws alongside us. God himself does this to us. He becomes a companion with us along the way. This is the story and the theology of the incarnation. This is what Christmas is all about. When God took on flesh, he came down to walk alongside us on our mortal, broken road. He did, as Hebrews says, he did this so that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. So that we would be able to relate to him as one who relates to us. If that makes any sense. He did this on a massive scale in his incarnation, and yet we see Jesus modeling it here on a small scale with a random guy named Cleopas. Um, If you remember in our story with Nathaniel, we talked about how before you know, you're known. Well, for these guys, before they see, which is what it ends up at at the end of the story, they are seen by Jesus. Jesus calls us, so Here's where this relates to our relationship with other people. Jesus calls us as his followers, empowered by his spirit, to imitate him here. We are called to be people who draw near to other people in this Jesus way. Remember, Deacon Chad said last week, when Jesus is resurrected, he tells his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And we're to interpret everything here in that lens. For most of us, If you have ever met the living God and you've encountered the risen one, my hunch is it probably began with somebody just drawing near you. Could have been a parent, could have been somebody in high school or way later in life, where somebody just saw you and started companioning with you. Can I walk alongside you for a bit? Tell me more about that. What's going on in your life? Um, I recently just finished a memoir about a guy who... uh, amazing conversion story and grew up in an alcoholic home and had a profound, hard, broken childhood. And by high school, he was spiraling out of control with drugs and alcohol, and he was just off the rails. Uh, Until this random guy who was a young life leader uh, in the 70s just looked at him and saw him and started asking him to talk and hear how his life was. And nobody had ever asked him before what his home life was. And he thought Young Life, which if you're not familiar with Young Life, it's like youth, youth group for people who don't go to church. Um, but he started, at, like, he thought Young Life was super cheesy, and he, like, thought Christians were weird and were super cheesy. He was in, like, rock bands in the 70s, but he could not get out of this, the power of a person just noticing him. He loved it. And later on, it blossomed into a full encounter with the Risen One, but it began with somebody just drawing alongside of him. How many of us could say the same? That's true of me as well. As the Father sent Jesus to draw alongside us in our humanity, so the resurrected Christ sends us, brothers and sisters, to do the same. 
We cannot become a conversion community, a place where we're seeing people repeatedly and again and again and in new ways encounter the risen Christ without being sacrificially intentional with other people. Amen? It's easy to only hang out with people that you like. Uh, my hunch is, I've never come out of a pandemic before, but some of us have pods. My hunch is it might be easy to like stay in your pod on the other side of the pandemic. It takes time, selflessness, and love to draw alongside others. And until we are putting our time and energy into doing that with other people, we can't complain about not seeing a lot of these moments for people in Madison in our own community. So, quick self-assessment. Who is it in your life that the Holy Spirit would lead you to draw alongside? Is there someone right now at work, in your neighborhood, uh, that you feel like, the Holy Spirit just wants me to listen to these people, to just ask these people what's going on, to draw alongside them, to give them my time. That's a good meditation today and this week. Witnessing the risen one begins with drawing near, and then it leads to, here's your next blank, storytelling. Storytelling. Verses 25 to 26, or sorry, 25 to 27. So this is after Cleopas has gushed and told him about everything that's going on. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And see Jesus grinning there. He's not there to insult these people. He's like, oh, foolish ones. You know, he's, he's about to blow their minds. Um, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. After Jesus has companioned these guys and listened, understood where they're at, he shares his own story. And specifically, he helps them understand his story, why it was necessary for him to die and rise again. Think about it. These guys knew the facts of what had apparently had happened. They knew that Jesus was a real guy. They knew that he had died at the hands of the Romans. And they had heard, even if they hadn't really believed it yet, that apparently he had risen again. So they have the facts of history in their mind. They also knew the scriptures. They were very familiar with the scriptures, according to Jesus. They knew the Moses and, Moses and the prophets. They knew what it had said. And yet none of it had clicked yet for them. It was just a bunch of confusing data that was bouncing around in their heads. As the New Testament says, there was still a veil that lied over Moses and the prophets and what had happened in history. And so what Jesus does in verse 27, which is the I wish I was there top moment for me in all the Bible. Oh, to hear him interpret the scriptures, right? This is what we have in the New Testament, but it was still been awesome to hear Jesus do it for the first time. What Jesus does in verse 27 is he performs a miracle in their hearts and minds. He lifts the veil. He brings history, everything that had happened in real life, scripture and prophecy all together inside of them and goes and makes it click. And as it clicks, something happens, which they say later on, their hearts burn. They get set on fire their mind and their soul and their reason and their faith all begin to sing in harmony around the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And they get doused in flames. What Jesus does here, 
for these two guys is paradigmatic for every Jew and Gentile who comes to encounter the risen Christ. At first, we have some knowledge of what the Bible might say. If you're Jewish, you have a lot, like these guys. For some people, it might even be a vague sense of what the Bible teaches. We all have a bit of understanding of history. We know that Jesus was a guy back then. Most people who even aren't Christian have some concept that Jesus was a real person, and he made a big splash, that it had to do something with his death and his resurrection. And yet all these things, for all of us, lie under a veil. They're foggy, jumbled, and it's through a divine miracle and nothing else that the veil is lifted. It all comes together. It begins to burn like fire. Now, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was the one who did this with them. Today, we experience this miracle through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the Holy Spirit's specific job descriptions. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit as the great teacher who leads us into all truth, right? So this is what he's doing in us. He does for us what Jesus does for these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And this is why we always ask for the Holy Spirit's help when we study scripture. This is why what we do every single week, which we're doing right now, we're opening the scriptures, we're asking God to lift the veil and we're interpreting it. Bringing history, your deepest longings, everything that's happening in your life right now, which only God knows, the truths of scripture and all bringing them together through the ministry of the Holy Spirit around the gravitational center of the cross and the resurrection. And as that happens, our hearts burn. The world is set on fire. This is the story of my life is trying to figure out what just happened since the first time that Jesus did this to me when I was a teenager. I've been on a road ever since of just like, I want more of that, please. And I've watched it happen many, many times. One time uh, when I lived in England, I had a friend, had the privilege of walk, walk, watching him undergo a profound conversion to Christianity. Didn't grow up in a Christian home, had nothing to do with religion his whole life, and through somebody he met when he was in university, somebody who drew alongside him, exactly like it is in this, he started to hear the gospel and went under this profound conversion. And right after he started saying yes to Jesus, we went on a university student retreat. And the first session, it was this like dingy little room and a guy started teaching about Psalm 45, which is kind of a bizarre Psalm. Uh, it's an obscure part of scripture that is not usually what you would open up a college retreat with. Um, and it was kind of a boring talk and it's like about the king and the queen of Israel and their like wedding garments and everything. Um, but my friend sitting there just started to be doused in flames. His heart started burning because the Holy Spirit started doing this miracle inside of him. And even apart from all of us, God started lifting the veil on his heart to seeing that this psalm wasn't just about David, it's about Jesus and how beautiful Jesus is and how much Jesus loves his bride, which is the church. And he started bawling and after the, after the talk, he said, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> and if you would have been there, you would have been like, what? You've had a boring life, except I knew exactly what he was talking about. His heart was burning. So this is happening today. We do not encounter the risen Christ apart from God's spirit interpreting God's word inside of you. And he does that miracle. That's why he's come. If you've never experienced that, he wants to do it.
And yes, even though it's always a miracle that only God can perform, there is still a sense of, as the Father sent me, so I sent you. Because we get empowered with the Spirit, and in God's good wisdom, he sends us alongside people to play a role in helping this happen in other people. God sends us to be divine, miracle-working storytellers. We don't do the miracle, but we do play a part by just helping people who have a lot banging around in their heads that's confusing, their longings, their knowledge of scripture, their knowledge of history, their feelings of reacting to what's in the world, and just going, just helping it click around Jesus' cross and resurrection. Another story, just because I think it's helpful to tell stories that this actually is true. When I was in high school, I had been, I played on a uh, rec church soccer team, which was miserable soccer, uh, but it was super fun, and so a lot of our friends who were not Christians started playing with us, and after one practice, our coach kind of took the opportunity, because there were so many folks who weren't Christians, uh, to talk about Jesus, and I thought he did it in a way that wasn't helpful, and if you've ever been loving on a friend of yours who is not a Christian and you feel like a Christian gives a bad witness. It's like, oh, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. So we're walking back to our cars and I feel like the Holy Spirit like lump in my throat, like I have to say something. So to my friend, I worked up the courage to be like, hey man, um, I'm a Christian too and there's some things I maybe would disagree with what that person said. If you ever want to hear about Jesus, I would love to talk about what Jesus is all about. And I was like, okay, I did it, Lord. You know, like, wow, that was great. And he said, to my terror, sweet, what about right now? And I was like, like right now? Like, uh, you mean tomorrow or like another time or like right now, you know? And he was like, I thought you just asked me if you wanted to talk about it, you know? So we ended up going to a diner and he explained to me, I was terrified, I was not prepared in any way. Uh, He explained to me, Jesus is just a, a normal rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. He didn't intend to do anything different. What Christians have done is basically take Uh, something that he never meant to happen and blown it up in a way that's dumb and it's all this stuff. And I was not eloquent. I don't even remember what I said. All I did was say, it's not like that. It's actually more like this. And that was basically it. And he was like, huh. And then we left and I was like, man, I hope I did okay. And he texted me later on that evening saying, I want to follow Jesus. And I saw his life utterly explode. The burden of conversion, of making this happen, is not on us. It's not on us. The burden of the miracle is not on you. You can't do it. It's on God. But as we love to say, God does everything, but we do something. God does everything, but we do something. And that is true for these situations. It's really, really simple, guys. We draw near our friends. We hear them. We are empathetic intentional, loving people, and then at some point, we just help bring things together around Jesus's death and resurrection. Finally, here's your last blank. Begins with drawing near, leads to storytelling, and it is consummated at the table. That's your last blank, the table. Jesus draws alongside them, he interprets to them the scriptures, and yet they still don't recognize him. Throughout the whole thing, they're getting warmer and warmer, closer and closer. Something is happening inside them, but it hasn't fully clicked yet, in a way. 
The great epiphany moment had not happened yet. It's after both of these parts, when they sit down to eat, that their faith turns to sight, that the magic happens. It's then he becomes known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 28 to 31. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. This is really amazing. Okay, we are a sacramental church, and some of you are like, yes, and some of you are like, I have no idea what you just said. Um, If you've been to our church before, you'll notice that we make a big deal out of communion. We celebrate it every week. Um, Like traditional Christian churches, it kind of takes prominence in our space, even how we think, I don't know, architecturally, even though we didn't design this room. We talk about it, we celebrate it, we receive it, and we digest it not as something that's just a mere symbol, but something more than that. And for people like me, who didn't grow up in a sacramental church, this can be super weird. I totally understand that. Why do we make such a big deal about this? What's all the hoopla about? Is this in the Bible? Um, I get it. But look at this with me, because this is really profound, and it's really challenging. First, Notice how it is blatantly Eucharistic. And when I say Eucharistic, it's blatantly not just about a meal or a table, but about the table and the meal. This is the Lord's Supper Jesus taught his disciples in his upper room. And we know that, look at verse verse 30, from the four big verbs used in verse 30. And when he was at table with them, he took one, the bread, and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Those are the four verbs used in the accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, very intentionally, which have to do with the Lord's Supper. Those are the four verbs Jesus uses in the upper room. They're the four verbs that St. Paul repeats in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so when Luke puts those together in one sentence at the end of this story, he's going ding, 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 ding. Like, look, learn from this. This is the Lord's feast. This is the table, not just any table. And then notice how the table is tied to the word in this passage. The table isn't all by itself. He doesn't just take these guys straight to a table. It's after there's been a lot of preaching and teaching. The word sets their hearts on fire. It starts to do something in them. But it doesn't come to its full effect until they break bread. And that's why I like the word consummated for this point. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus reveals himself through the word and through the table. They're married And that means for us, when it comes to witnessing and encountering the risen Christ, it's going to involve, at least in some capacity, word and table. Finally, notice how something happens at this moment. I already mentioned that Jesus does a miracle when he does that thing inside of you with with his word, when the Holy Spirit 
sets on fire history and scripture and your inner personhood around the Bible's teaching of the cross and the resurrection and it makes you burn, it's a miracle. Well, there's also a miracle that happens here. If there's any part of this story that's mysterious, it's this moment, right? What just happened? He all of a sudden is visible to them and he becomes known to them in the breaking of the bread. So this is what Jesus taught his disciples to do. This is why he instituted the Lord's Supper. He wants the church, he wants us, brothers and sisters, to experience this. Not just to go through the motions of a dead ritual, but to have Jesus become known to us in the breaking of the bread. And this is what the church has always done because of that. In Acts 2, the very earliest picture we get of the church, they're devoted to a bunch of things. We talk about this a lot in our diocese, but one, they're devoted to the teaching of the apostles, right? This, what Jesus did in verse, 20, in the verse 27 is the apostolic teaching. It's reinterpreting the Old Testament in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the New Testament. And the breaking of the bread. So even earlier on in the book of Acts, with the earliest church, they're devoted to doing this. And this is why we do it every week. This is why we're going to do it in a few seconds. Our church service is the road to Emmaus. Isn't that awesome? We draw together. We're called into God's presence. We hear the scriptures read. We hear the scriptures interpreted. We're set on fire. And then we come, we let that draw us to the table to have our encounter with Christ consummated every single week. Jesus is really met at his table. There's so much here. But I just want to give at least one testimony to bear witness to that this is not just something empty. I could use many stories, but I'm fascinated, the one most recently, is that memoir of that guy. Grew up in a broken home, has nothing to do with church, meets a young life guy, uh, started to know scriptures, started to rub shoulders with Christians, but things hadn't really come together until a friend in high school, when he was a senior or a junior in high school, took him to a charismatic Episcopalian church uh, back in the 70s, which, if you're like, I have no idea what you just said, think our church, but way more crazy and charismatic, like people running through the aisles, like super intense, and way more Catholic, which, it's a wild thing to think, right? He walks in, he's like, oh my gosh, like, it's like the least seeker-friendly church of all time, and he's freaked out by the worship, and he doesn't know what's happening, but he's there, until the priest gets up and starts the Eucharistic prayer. And he had grown up in a Catholic, he remembered the, remembers the Eucharist being precious to him as a kid when he was Catholic, even though his family was nominal. And the Eucharistic prayer is what I'll say in a second, the Lord be with you and also with you, lift up your hearts. And he says he's in the, the pews and something starts happening inside of him and he puts his head down and all of a sudden he literally meets Jesus. God started taking him back through his whole childhood and showing him ways that he had been with him all along. And Jesus became known to him and spoke to him at that moment in the Eucharist. So while I think Emmaus is paradigmatic, I don't think it's figurative. Does that make sense? While this is a playbook, it's not a metaphor. This is church when we talk about being part of a revival of word and sacrament infused with the Holy Spirit, 
This is what we are talking about. The goal is not the table. The goal is not the Bible. What's the goal? Jesus. Who uses them both to reveal himself? Jesus. Wow. Now finally, how does this relate to our witness? Really quick. There's so much to be said about hospitality here, about being people who have people to our homes, about inviting others to our table, not just to preach and pontificate, but to serve both kindness and food. But I think deeper than that, um, this teaches us that our goal is not ultimately to get people to our table. Our goal is to get people to Jesus' table. Amen? That is the end goal. You want them to be up in this room with their hands out like this, and one day when we can all come back down again to receive Jesus' body and blood. That's what you are leading them towards. For our friends and families and neighbors, what begins with drawing near leads to storytelling and is consummated at the table. That's the pattern of our worship and encountering the risen one, and it is the pattern of our evangelism. Okay, I just want to show you one more tool as we're finishing. I get, we have another handout in here. Last week you got a card that says Frank on it, which is a way of praying for people in your life, just praying, who are friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, and coworkers. Thank you very much, Caitlin. Um, bless. I told you our whole diocese is preaching through these passages. Our whole diocese is thinking about how can we, we can be a conversion community where people are encountering Jesus like this who don't know him yet. And that first tool is just to get you praying for people. This one is a, a tool to just help think about how to interact with friends and people on your Frank list. Um, it is not exactly Emmaus. It's, a, it's a, just an evangelistic tool, but we loved how similar it was to this story. And so a lot of churches in our diocese are talking about this today. Begin with prayer. That's what you're already doing with Frank. And then you listen like Jesus does. Hear him out. Spend time with him. Ask him about their life. Don't tell them about your life yet. Just be a good friend. Eat. Have him over to your house for dinner. Go out to eat. Serve him something tasty. Have him into a bonfire, bonfire in your backyard. Serve them. How can you bless them in, in their life? How can you bless them with their kids? All kinds of ways you can serve them. And then at the end, story. Meaning, share the story of Jesus. Tell your own story. Bear testimony. I love this little tool. Think about Jesus on the road to Emmaus as you are thinking about this with other people, but it's really simple. It's not only for some rock star people, and we want, all of this is driven by the, by the fact that we want people to encounter the risen Jesus. Amen? We're going to have Frank and Bless. You'll hear us talk about that a lot. This will be on our website too if you want one of these cards and you're watching online. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.